Let's turn in our copies of God's Word at this time to Paul's epistle to the Romans. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Romans 1, beginning in verse 18, this is the Word of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind, to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Well, let's turn back in our Bibles to the passage that we read from Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Once again, zeroing in on verse 18. This morning seeking the Lord's help and blessing, we'll be continuing our theme from the previous week, seeking to apply the principles that we considered there from this verse. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And last time we saw what is meant by the wrath of God. God's holy, righteous, just, and active hatred of sin directed towards sinners. We saw that God's wrath is not merely something from the past, the distant past, the God of the Old Testament as it were, who flooded the earth under Noah, who literally under Noah, and uh, brought fire from heaven to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and so on and so forth. Not merely the past, but this is an ongoing thing. The wrath of God, literally in the Greek, is being revealed from heaven. God's wrath is intrinsic to His justice, His holiness, His righteousness, that such that wherever sin exists, His intrinsic, infinite, eternal, unchangeable response from His very being is this hatred of sin, this active hatred of sin, this judgment of sin. And it's also a future reality such that the manifestations that we see, as it were, trickling down in this life are a foretaste, a harbinger, a warning of the wrath to come in hell. We saw that this wrath is directed against specifically two categories of sins, ungodliness and unrighteousness. And this representing the two main categories of sin. The first table of the law, the first four commandments given at Mount Sinai, dealing with our duty to love God. to to give God His due, our duties toward God, in love to God. And the last six commandments, uh, as opposed to ungodliness, violating the first table, the last six commandments define righteousness, our duty toward others, our duty to love our neighbor, to love our brothers and sisters, to love our enemies, our duty toward humanity on a horizontal level. And so to violate that would be unrighteousness. So really, what Paul is saying here is that God's wrath is revealed against all sin. All forms of unrighteousness against others horizontally. All forms of ungodliness. Vertically speaking, sins directly against the first table of God's law. All sin brings death. There's no such thing as a venial sin. As the Roman Catholic Church falsely declares that certain sins are venial, it's not as big of a deal, but then there are these big time mortal sins that'll just, boom, put you on a collision course with hell. All sin deserves the wrath of God. God's wrath is against all sin. All forms of ungodliness, all forms of unrighteousness. And we saw that this wrath of God is directed against all sinners. Not just a select few, not just people that worship idols in a far off land, Um, everybody. You can be a member of the Reformed Presbyterian Church or whatever, whatever church you can be a member of, it doesn't matter. If you are by nature still in your sin, apart from faith in Christ, God's wrath is missile locked on you now and for eternity and you need to repent and put your trust in Christ, no matter who you are. And some people say, well then, uh, what about the person far off worshiping the idols? And, and they would say, whereas the one person might 
might focus God's wrath on the foreigner worshiping idols, other people would say, well, God's wrath can't be against them because they've never heard the gospel. They've never received a Bible. But once again, it's against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The word is anthropos, humanity. It's against every single person conceived and born into this world apart from salvation through Christ, apart from the righteousness of God through faith in Christ. Every sinner that comes into this world, and that's every human being, is under the wrath of God. Children of wrath, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. So this is dealing with every single person, every single sin by nature. We have to understand that. But we also saw that Paul chooses to list ungodliness before unrighteousness. And that's not random. He does that for a very important reason. Because there is a priority within the moral law of God. There's a priority. Ungodliness is is far worse and more serious than unrighteousness. Or if we can put it in uh, converse terms, we could say that godliness is more significant than righteousness. Now again, these two things go together. We're not suggesting that a godly person is going to be characterized by unrighteousness or vice versa. Both of these things stand together, but one comes first in priority, which is why Jesus says that the first great commandment, they're both great, He says the first great commandment is to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second in priority is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So the vertical is primary and fundamental, first in priority. And the horizontal, which flows out of the vertical, our love for others, which flows out of our love for God, uh, comes second. And we saw that that involves a moral priority. We have a greater moral obligation to love God and give Him His due because of the fact that He created us. He is the source of our life. He's the source of every good and perfect gift. Everything that we enjoy or delight in in this world has been created by God and providentially given to us by God. So we owe Him literally our life. We owe Him everything. Even the atheist, every single ounce of life and breath and joy and satisfaction in this life to whatever extent is due to God. And God is holy and sinless. So God has never given us any challenges in terms of loving Him. It's not hard to love God or it shouldn't be hard to love God. He's never sinned against us. He's a good God. He's a righteous God. He's a just and holy God. There are people that God calls us to love horizontally that sin against us all the time, and it's more difficult to love those people, but not so God. There is no unrighteousness in Him. So there's a moral priority in terms of loving God over against loving our neighbor. Secondly, there's a logical priority. There's a logical priority of godliness, the vertical, as opposed to the horizontal righteousness. It's a logical priority because why is unrighteousness unrighteous? Why is it sinful to murder somebody? The Bible says, Genesis chapter 9, it's sinful to murder those people around you, anybody who bears the image of God because they bear the image of God. 
You kill somebody like Cain killed Abel. Why is that wrong? Fundamentally, it's because of the glory of God being at stake. If you kill an image bearer, uh, you're directly attacking God. So unrighteousness is unrighteous because it's ungodly. If there were no vertical element in our moral or ethical system, there would be no horizontal obligation toward our neighbor. If there was no godliness, there would be no need for righteousness. There would be no authoritative basis for it. But we need to be righteous because God says we need to be righteous. And so you can see the logical priority. You take out godliness and righteousness, uh, it, it fades away quickly. Thirdly, there's a causal priority. Godliness produces righteousness. If you fear God and you take Him seriously, you're going to take the last six commandments of His law very seriously. You're going to love your neighbor. You're going to show love to others because you love God who made them. Or in terms of inside the church, you love the God who redeemed them, who sent His Son to save them. So, Your godliness produces righteousness. And if we claim to be godly and our life doesn't match up in terms of the way that we treat other people, James says uh, that if you, you say, oh, I have faith, I've got a vertical saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ, but I only pay lip service to the people around me. I don't help those in need. I'm not loving toward them. Then he says that is a dead faith. That's a dead verticality. That's a false verticality. That's a false claim to have a relationship with God through Christ and to be a godly person. So, godliness produces righteousness. And on the flip side, ungodliness produces unrighteousness. That's true organically, where there's no fear of God before our eyes. Psalm 14, Psalm 53. Uh, You can read Paul quoting these things in Romans chapter 3. When there's no fear of God before our eyes. Our throat is an open tomb. Our tongues practice deceit. The poison of asps is under our lips. Our mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Our feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in our ways. The way of peace we have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So you see, the foolishness of thinking we can have a society in which virtually nobody fears God even in the church, we, we're not where we need to be. We, we would honestly admit that. But where on a large scale there's no fear of God, how are we going to know the way of peace? You're not going to have the horizontal peace in all your human relationships if you don't have peace with God. So ungodliness produces unrighteousness. If there's no God or if he's somewhere off in the galaxy and doesn't concern himself much with human affairs, or if there's no real way to have any certainty who the true God is and who, you know, what religious claims are true or false, and we're all just agnostics, then why shouldn't the, the, the lone gunman go into the kindergarten and shoot everybody? Why is that wrong if there's no God? Because we can, we can think of numerous examples from the animal kingdom where animals do all kinds of things that if you would do in a human context, we would say, oh, that's horrible, that's immoral, that's unethical, that's wrong, that's unjust, we need social justice. But the fact is, without the God of justice, there's no social justice. So there's a causal priority. And in Romans 1, we're told, 
It's not just that organic causal priority to where ungodliness produces unrighteousness, but God says, I'm going to add, I'm going to add something to that organic causal relationship between these things. I am judicially going to give your society over to unrighteousness. If you profess yourself to be wise, wiser than God, thinking that you as a human civilization can come up with a better plan for the way of peace and righteousness and justice than is written in this book or than is revealed in the created world, you've got a better plan than God. God says, you especially ought to be on notice. I'm going to make sure that your plans utterly fail and that your ungodliness, your godlessness produces all forms of unrighteousness and utter chaos crumbling your civilization to the ground. That's what Romans 1 is saying. So the causal priority. Now, we also ask the question, what do we call man's fallen tendency to ignore or oppose or reverse this order? This priority scale of vertical goes first, then horizontal. Godliness is primary Righteousness is secondary. What do we call man's fallen tendency to ignore that order, to oppose that order, to try to reverse that order? And we said that we call it humanism. Now, technically, the definition of humanism is that man is the measure of all things. Mankind is the measure of all things. But in this particular context, humanism manifests itself in terms of our understanding of ethics. In, term, in terms of the way that we define what is good and what is evil. Or we might say our doctrine of sin. The biblical doctrine of sin, the biblical definition of sin, amounts to this, that actual sin, the actions that we're ethically evaluating, actual sin is defined in relation to God alone. Our ethics is grounded in verticality, in godliness, and in God's presence, God's authority, God as the Creator, even God as the Redeemer in some sense, adding that equation to it. But actual sin is defined in relation to God alone. Psalm 51 verse 4, Against you and you only have I sinned, says David. Now, we said last time, he sinned against the nation by not going out to war and taking a nap on his roof. In the middle of the day, laziness, no excuse for that. He sinned against the nation. He sinned against Uriah the Hittite's wife Bathsheba by looking upon her bathing in the house next door rather than sending a servant to to let her know, hey, you might want to pull the shades or whatever. Instead, he sends a servant to bring her to him, having lusted in his heart after her. He takes her, he commits adultery with her, sinning against her. And then she's pregnant, he tries to cover it up, he ends up conspiring to murder her husband, one of his faithful fellow soldiers and mighty men, Uriah the Hittite. So he sinned against others, and his his child died, and then many of his other sons had all kinds of problems, and uh, his entire family horizontally was miserable in many ways as a result of God's judgment for this sin. And yet he says, fundamentally, The reason what I did was sinful was because it was against you. It was against you, O Lord, 
That's fundamentally why it was sinful. Sin, 1 John 3, 4, is lawlessness. And who's the lawgiver? God. So that's the biblical understanding of sin, that it's defined in relation to God alone. The humanistic definition of sin, if, if they would even uh, acknowledge a definition of sin, but, but uh, as we'll see, humanism is pervasive even in the Christian church. So a, a humanistic definition of sin would say that actual sin is defined in relation to man. Actual sin is defined in terms of how it impacts yourself or other people, how it impacts your relationships, whether what you're doing is useful or not useful in the eyes of the beholder, whether what you're doing causes harm or seems to to be a blessing to the person or to others. Uh, Humanistic thinking when it comes to right and wrong, is grounded in the horizontal. Actual sin is defined in relation to mankind. And that's a big difference. When you have a horizontally grounded ethic, it makes a big difference. And sadly, this type of thinking, as Paul warns us in Romans chapter 12, this type of thinking has caused many, even inside the church, many of ourselves inside of our hearts and minds, to be conformed to this humanistic pattern of thought and ethics. And so we have to ask the question this morning, in what ways have we been guilty of humanistic thinking? In what ways have we been conformed to the humanistic ideologies of this world that refuse God's paradigm of godliness and then secondarily righteousness? Let's examine ourselves first our personal life? How has humanism impacted our personal life, even as professing Christians in the church? How has it impacted our Christian life, we might say? Do we really operate as if it's the case that against God and God only have we sinned? That ethics is fundamentally vertical? Do we act that way? Is that the way we think? Is that the the way that we live our lives as professing Christians? Well, Let's think about this for a moment. What is the role of Scripture in your life? What is the role of the Bible in your life? Because if we have a Bible-based outlook on life as opposed to humanistic, if we have a biblical understanding of ethics and of the Christian life, contra-humanism, then we are going to be characterized on a daily basis by actively, urgently, and prayerfully studying the Bible. If we have a biblical mindset here, if, if, if we're trampling underfoot the humanism of our day, the spirit of the age, we are going to rely upon this book like nothing else because we're going to recognize that fundamentally the difference between right and wrong is grounded in the character of God and our relationship to God. And we need to go to Him every day to study His commandments, to study His Word. He has divinely revealed His truth, His righteousness. We need to depend upon that like nothing else. And the reason for that is Psalm 19 verse 7 says that we have hidden sins. Psalm 19 talks all about the importance of studying 
God's law. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So we come into this equation, we say, I'm simple, I'm foolish, I don't understand, and there's no way I'm going to understand right from wrong, and there's no way I'm going to come to grips with my hidden sins. Uh, It's actually in, in verse 12, rather. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. So I'm simple, I'm foolish. God has revealed His commands, His law in the Scriptures. I need to be in those commandments every single day because I have hidden sins. The tip of the iceberg is visible. I can see certain sins in my life and I'm hopefully fighting them and so on and so forth. But there's more of the iceberg underneath the water than above the water visible such that the eye can see. So if, I, if I'm a biblical Christian in this respect, I am looking to the Scriptures so that I can dive down in. Of course, I guess the water would be pretty cold. My analogy is breaking down. But so that I can see underneath the surface of the water from the God who knows my heart and knows all those hidden sins. And I'm asking you, do you really believe that you have hidden sins that need to be discovered? If you do, you're going to be actively, urgently, prayerfully studying the Bible every day. You're going to be thinking about the Bible. Romans 12 says, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Uh, The biblical anti-humanistic mindset is, how can, how can I avoid being conformed to the pattern of this world if I'm not actively renewing my mind every day and understanding what God says is sin so that I can repent of it and seek forgiveness? But here's the problem. The humanistic view of the Christian life views the Bible very differently. To the extent that we have imbibed and been influenced by humanistic thinking in the matter of ethics, we will sit back passively. We will not be actively mining out the Scriptures to discover our hidden sins and to better understand what God requires of us so that we can be more and more godly and more and more humbled by our sin. Instead, we're going to passively sit back and the only time we're going to be stirred up with any urgency to deal with an ethical question or an ethical matter is in reaction to horizontal disruptions in our lives. So the humanistic Christian, even a truly converted person, but they're, they're backsliding into humanism, they're not actively, aggressively studying the righteousness and godliness of the Bible. They're sitting back, and the only time they really deal with these things is if there's some big problem in their family or some big problem in their relationships or in the workplace. Something that just forces them for horizontal reasons to begin to contemplate the vertical character of godliness Uh, when when something disrupts their life when there's something inconvenient that all of a sudden causes them oh I i need to study this issue i need to be serious i need to figure this out there's something in my life that's causing problems so now i'm going to repent of it but the thing is that was a hidden sin for that whole time before the disruption took place what were you doing then why didn't you discover it then to prevent the disruption And the problem is that especially if we're true Christians, if we only search the Scriptures and take repentance seriously, 
when we have this inconvenient disruption, then what do you think we can expect from our Heavenly Father when He is going to deal with us on a certain sin and He knows we're not going to actively find it in our Bible reading because we're not reading the Bible aggressively, teachably, urgently, prayerfully. We're not doing that, so the, the only method at His disposal, in a way, is to bring inconvenience into our lives to get our attention. And that can be very painful that He would continue to bring those things. That's what you see in Romans 1 on a large scale with the pagan nations. Uh, in uh, verse 28, the phrase not fitting is translated in the King James as not convenient or inconvenient. So if a society is not going to take God's revelation seriously, he'll find in- inconveniences to bring into the life of the nation so that people start taking him seriously. We need to be taking a biblical approach, not a humanistic approach. And that relates not only to our daily Bible reading in the Christian life, but also ethical issues that exist, ethical questions. Perhaps we might even say at times ethical controversies in the Christian church. How much time and effort do we spend looking into these ethical questions that come before the church? Looking into, for instance, things like how ought God to be worshipped? What does biblical worship look like in the church? What are biblical elements of worship? What should be included in a public worship service? What should be left out? Do we take that question seriously? Or do we put it on the back burner? What about the issue of the Sabbath? What does it mean that God has set apart one day in seven? And that Jesus rose again on the first day of the week and that's the day the apostles met together. What does that mean for my daily life? What are the sorts of things that ought to be left out of the Sabbath? What are the sorts of things that ought to be included in the Sabbath day of rest and worship? What should I do about things like holy days? Uh, What about Christmas and Easter? Should I be celebrating those? Should I have an Easter egg hunt or bring a Christmas tree into my house? That's a question. Uh, That's an ethical question that needs to be addressed. What should I do with alcohol? Should I have no alcohol, just completely abstain? Or should I allow a moderate uh, use of alcohol? What about uh, head coverings? What about what I wear to the beach? What about dating and courtship? What about minced oaths? You know, somebody says, goodness gracious, using, um, you know, using attributes of God in, in a flippant way. Listen, these are ethical questions. I've just named a few of them that can create a firestorm of controversy. But my question to you is, how seriously do you take those issues? Do you take them seriously? Do you use what you've learned in your active, prayerful study of the Word every day? And then when you come across these controversies, you again urgently, prayerfully research them and look into, you can't do them all at once, I understand, but look into them and find materials and listen to sermons and try to get a handle on the biblical answer to these ethical questions? Or do you reflect a humanistic mindset that yawns at these questions and says, well, uh, unless there's some kind of horizontal disruption, then I'm not going to pay any attention to what should or shouldn't be in a public worship service or what I should or shouldn't do on the Sabbath or whether I should have the Easter egg hunt or whatever. I'm not going to look into this. I'm just going to yawn and and let it go and focus on things that are more important like 
my investment portfolio or something like that. That is humanism. And, and if that's how you approach those types of ethical issues, again, we may disagree on the answer that you come up with, but I fear that one of the main reasons that issues like this actually are such a source of strife and controversy is because few people have studied them. And many people just ignore them and say, well, that's extremism. I'm not even going to think about that. Um, the more we study them, the more we have unity, in the, in, at least to the extent that we can find unity in the Word of God. But we're never going to find unity if every man does what's right in his own eyes. Personal life. Secondly, family life. In what ways have we been conformed to the humanistic ideologies of this world in our family life? John the Apostle, perhaps one of the most loosely quoted verses in all the Bible, and I'm happy to quote it loosely because I think it's still relevant. He says, no greater joy do I have. I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth. Now there, John the Apostle is speaking of his spiritual children, those people who were converted under his ministry to whom he's writing in these churches in Asia Minor in his various epistles. But nevertheless, the principle is broader. No greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth. As a parent, is that your mindset? Is that your priority scale? Do you have a vertically oriented outlook on parenting your children? Do you prioritize godliness over righteousness? Emphasizing both, but do you, do you let your children know through your words, through your actions, through your priorities that, that God is on the throne, that, that God and godliness are fundamental and primary and the only true source of horizontal blessedness? Is that how you run your home? Can they see that in your life, that you have no greater joy than to see them walking in the truth that accords with godliness? Is that the case in your family life? Or if they were honest, they would look at you and they would say, yep, uh, my parents, they, have, they would have no greater joy than that I would make the starting lineup on the, the athletic team. Or get a college degree with a well-paying job. What is your passion? What is your heart? What is the foundation of your family life? Is it godliness? Is it God Himself? Is it the vertically oriented Christian life? Or has it been tainted by the horizontally focused spirit of humanism? And you can see this in a variety of ways. We can all evaluate ourselves, but, but think of family worship. Family worship, 365 days in a year. 365 days, for the most part, I guess, in a year. You have family worship, hopefully, every day. In the past, they've done it morning and evening in, in the Christian church, in the Reformed church, but let's just, let's just say uh, every day, every morning or every evening for 18 years. And I know I, I could have redone my math here with 14, 13 or 14 years, taking into account at what age children begin to learn more from family worship. But I really think from, from the outset, family worship with, with even an infant of days, there's a value to that. 
getting them in the habit, getting them in family worship, even when they can't quite understand everything that's happening, my friends, starting from the outset, 18 years, 365 days a year, uh, I came up with 6,570 using a calculator. Hopefully that's correct, but think about that. And let's say you miss some days, and let's take off a couple thousand because they were really young and so on and so forth. But let's just say three or 4,000 instances of family worship where you are teaching and training, fathers teaching and training your children, where you are taking what God has taught you in the Bible about godliness and righteousness, about God's power and sovereign grace, and you are teaching them verse by verse through the Bible or however you do it. You're teaching and training them thousands of times before they hit age 18. And if they're still in the household again, you know, it may be beyond that, but three, four, five thousand times. Don't tell me that's not going to make a huge difference if somebody has had that. Some of us did not have that growing up, and we sense uh, the reality of that in comparison to those that have. But Christian parents, you have this opportunity. You've taken baptismal vows for your children. God has given you these little ones three, four, five thousand times in family worship throughout their life in your home. And think of the Sabbath. 52 weeks a year times 18 years. Again, we could play around with that number, but let's just take it at face value. 936. Nearly a thousand Sabbaths in your household. Your children will have Five to six thousand fa- opportunities for family worship, nearly a thousand Sabbaths in your home where you're focused on God. Not on the horizontal as much, though there's Christian fellowship and so forth, but focusing on God, focusing on Jesus Christ, on the law, on the gospel, on the 66 books of the Bible, on prayer, on singing God's praise. Again, don't tell me that that's not going to have a major impact whether a child has that benefit and advantage versus whether that child doesn't. Friends, this is the curriculum that God has appointed for His church. This is the divine, Christ-appointed blueprint for a well-ordered, healthy covenant community being salt and light in the world. And so, if you remove... 5,000 family worships and 1,000 Sabbaths from children growing up in the church. Okay, they get a couple sermons once a week, maybe if they're not in children's church. My friends, that makes a big difference. The world is the way it is today because we have imbibed the spirit of humanism and we don't take godliness seriously with our children. What if we approached our children's education in the church today the way that we approach our children's godliness for the most part on the whole? Oh, we would never do that because then they wouldn't get a good job and so on. My friends, why do we care more about that on the whole than we do about their soul? What will it profit them to gain the whole world and lose their own soul? And what will it profit the church on a macro scale to wither and shrivel and shrink because we've basically taken God's curriculum for the family and thrown it out the window and focused our attention 
on other things. The, the primary purpose of, of saying this in the context of Romans 1 is simply to convict us of our sins. Obviously, that leads to repentance. Obviously, there, there's more to be said. But let it convict you and let it convict me of sin, of our need to humble ourselves before God who has given us these children to repent and to seek the righteousness of Christ and in response to that grace to bring forth the fruits of new obedience. Thirdly, church life. Church life. Well, church life is just personal and family life writ large. Church life is just personal and family life as we've already described on a grander scale in the corporate body of Christ. And so to the extent that humanism has characterized our personal dealings with the Bible and ethical issues, to the extent that it has tainted our family priorities, the fact is it's inescapable, as I've already mentioned, that this man-centered, horizontally-oriented approach to life will be the utter bane of the church and will cripple and hamstring the Great Commission. And in the life of the church, so oftentimes we see this humanism manifested when there's an opportunity for first table reformation. Reformation in the way that we worship God, in, in the way that we keep the Sabbath, in, in various aspects of the first table of the law, in how we conduct the Lord's Supper and fence the table and have church discipline. All of these things that primarily focus on the glory of God First table reformation, when there's an opportunity for that, we find so often that the church doesn't take the opportunity. Or the church is so addicted to horizontal comfort and convenience that if there's going to be a first table reformation in the church, it requires a second table alibi. So if we're going to make a major change to satisfy the first table of the law vertically, there has to be a horizontal dog in the fight, a horizontal alibi to, to sort of have an excuse to do the hard things and to glorify God even when outwardly it seems inconvenient. That's a sign of humanism. And it's, it's a sign that God will probably respond to that by taking away our horizontal peace and comfort. And I think as a denomination, we really need to examine ourselves and consider our ways because we have seen how, how many years in a row, several years now, horizontal disruption after horizontal disruption, inconvenience, conflict, scandal. My friends, I'm not here to speak about whether or not we've soft-pedaled the first table, but I can say we ought to be asking that question we ought to be asking that question. Could it be that God is taking away our second table horizontal convenience to get our attention back to the first table and His glory? Well, the last uh, category here, political life. Our political life. And yes, you have a political life. Um, whether or not you're able to vote in terms of your citizenship status or whatever, you have a political life. You are part of this society in one way, shape, or form. And the, the biblical approach to political life, the God-centered, godliness-oriented uh, approach to political life 
is one that you see reflected in the historical books of the Old Testament. Read, read the way that the Old Testament provides a lens for viewing Old Testament Israel. Notice in the book of Kings or the book of Chronicles or in the prophets or even in Deuteronomy when social and political life is represented. Notice the most important factors that the Lord draws to our attention. Whether a king worshipped God whether the king punished both tables of the law, sins against both tables of the law, whether he put down idolatry and removed the high places and, and uh, purged the sodomites out of the land, and whether, whether that person glorified God and implemented his law. And even when you see God's law being emphasized in these passages, it's generally the first table of the law. The kings and the nations are evaluated on whether they worship God, their relationship to God. And when you see wicked nations repenting, like in Nineveh, what do you see? They fast. They pray. They seek God's face. It's not moralistic. It's not second table based. There's a righteous fruit there, but it's fundamentally a vertical enterprise. That's how God wants us to view our national life, with a vertical orientation. We want to see godly leaders. We want to see leaders who will point our attention to God against whom we've sinned and humble themselves before God and lead the nation by example in submitting to the Word and to the Son of God. Not so the humanistic view even in the Christian church today, the humanistic, horizontally oriented view of political life, which focuses almost entirely on second table, horizontal issues of justice and righteousness. Of course we want to oppose abortion. Of course we want to oppose LGBTQ plus marriage and all all these kinds of things. Okay, we want to oppose those things. We want to promote and advocate for civil liberties. Absolutely. But these things are the fruit of godliness. And the things that we see around us, though we fight them diligently, we recognize these are God's judgment for our ungodliness. And that our fundamental outlook should be repentance. Humbling ourselves before God. Seeking His face. Kissing the Son. That is a command not to the individual, but to the nations of the world. Psalm 2. Kiss the Son. We need to seek the face of God. And we can only do so much. You can only make so much progress against abortion, against perversion, against frittering away our civil liberties. You can only make so much progress against these second table problems if you're not seeking God directly through repentance and humility and seeing gospel fruit, and seeing people stop worshiping the created world and start worshiping God who is blessed forever. You see humanism in in the left, the, the political left. You see people on the left abandoning godliness for a redefined righteousness. And that's why you have so many people today on the left talking about social justice. They've abandoned the vertical, so now... It's just, for the most part, there's a horizontal standard and that horizontal standard has been redefined from the standard of justice in the Word of God to a standard that is defined by human reason, 
human opinion, human theories, and human scholars. They abandon godliness for a redefined righteousness. You see this humanism on the right side, or the, you know, the political right wing of the political spectrum, where they replace godliness with a reduced righteousness. Yes, there's still some semblance on the political right wing, there's still some semblance of traditional, we might say, biblical moral values, but it's been reduced. It's been diluted. It's just a a glimmer of what it once was. And in terms of godliness, you see virtually nothing other than a a shallow sort of patriotic God bless America. Uh, It's very disturbing. They replace godliness with a reduced righteousness. We see in the evangelical world, there's this tendency in fighting abortion or gay marriage to compromise godliness in order to promote righteousness. And so you see people joining hands with those who promote a false gospel that's sending people to hell in order to fight abortion doctors that are killing people. Um, We should be pro-life eternally and on an earthly scale. Uh, we, we can't join forces. Of course, at a practical level, I'm not saying don't be polite to the Roman Catholic at the abortion clinic where you're evangelizing, but I'm simply saying on a large scale, we can't join hands with the Pope to fight the abortion doctor. Um, at the end of the day, that is humanistic. We see our founding fathers formed this nation on the basis of the humanistic idea that we could leave the issue of godliness We could leave it blank. You fill in the blank for what godliness is to you. We're going to make this a subjective ideal. Everybody can come up with their own higher power that that can fill in the blank in terms of godliness, in terms of worship, in terms of verticality. We're going to leave that out of our constitution, uh, but we're still going to have righteousness and peace. Sorry, that hasn't worked out real well, has it? Um, we're going to restrict godliness out of our constitution, no religious testos, no laws based upon scripture, no laws based upon the first table of the law. We're going to restrict godliness. We're not going to tell you what the basis for our morality is in the living God of scripture. We're going to restrict that inside the reservation, inside the church, in the four walls of the church. But we're going to have righteousness from sea to shining sea and liberty and justice for all. Sorry, that's not working out too well. You can't base the horizontal on itself. It needs the vertical. It needs the first table. And this has been an utter failure. Well, just briefly, I know I'm out of time. What's the solution to this? The solution is simply this. The gospel. The gospel itself is entirely vertical. God has come down in the person of His Son... God has sovereignly, unilaterally, from all eternity chosen to save sinners. He has done it. He has accomplished it through Jesus Christ, through His perfect obedience, through His death on the cross, through His resurrection and ascension. There is no room for human boasting. In a humanistic age, what do we need to do more than ever? Preach the Gospel. What does the Gospel say about us as humans? The measure of all things, no, we're dust in the scales. A drop in the bucket. Less than nothing. Our best works are as filthy rags in the sight of God. 
We need the Gospel. And we need the Gospel wherein the believer cries out to God in Psalm 25. We'll sing it in a moment. Pardon my iniquity to glorify Your name. A Gospel that even the gift of salvation that is 100% given and accomplished by God, even that gift is not for the purpose of making your life better, primarily. It's not primarily or fundamentally something that's done for the good of sinners. It is that, but that horizontal element, we could say, that human element is firmly grounded in the vertical, in the God-centeredness of a gospel that says, my sins are forgiven so that God would be glorified. I get to go to heaven through Christ undeservedly through the shed blood of Christ so that Christ would look good. So that He would be filled with joy. So that He would shine like the sun. As Paul says in Ephesians 1.12, so that we should be to the praise of His glory. Why do we have salvation? Why do we have all spiritual blessings in Christ in the heavenly places? Why did He choose us, predestine us, adopt us, redeem us, forgive us, Ephesians 1, Paul says, here's why. So that we should be unto the praise of His glory. That, my friends, the Gospel itself is a nice tall glass of God-centered verticality that our society needs and we need it too. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank You for this Gospel. We pray that You would use it in a powerful, dynamic way, shock us into a God-centered verticality in our view of ethics, in our view of ourselves, in our view of eternity, in our view even of salvation itself. We pray, O Lord, that we would stop serving the creature and begin more and more to serve the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen.